and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Michael Hathaway. Michael's book, What a Mushroom Lives For, Matsutake and the Worlds They Make won the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. It was also a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. On this episode, Michael talks about mushrooms, of course, along with human exceptionalism and his approach to it in the book. Here's my conversation with Michael Hathaway. My first question for you is... Who are you? Who am I? I'm um, Michael Hathaway. I'm an anthropologist at uh, Simon mm-hmm. Fraser University. And I've been working for a long time on um, questions of environmental rights and indigenous rights in Asia. But I've always been deeply curious and uh, about and fascinated by uh, the natural world. So I've been a bit of a a naturalist uh, for a while. And then in the last decade or so, I've gone pretty um, crazy into uh, learning about the worlds of mushrooms. Awesome. So for those who aren't familiar with what a mushroom lives for, can you describe the book a little bit? Sure. Yes. This is a a book that is um, part of a trilogy. So I'm a, yeah, as I said, I'm an anthropologist and I work with a group of other anthropologists that are based in Canada and the States. And our group is called the Matsutake Worlds uh, Research Group. And so we're really fascinated about this one particular mushroom called the Matsutake in Japanese. And we often describe it here in British Columbia as the pine mushroom. And they actually, it's the same word. It's just that Matsu is pine and take is um, mushroom in Japanese. And one thing that's been really interesting to us is that it's one of the world's most valuable mushrooms Um, But they are uh, only really, really loved, um, especially in Japan. So almost all the mushrooms of the Matsutake that are picked here or in Mexico or in Scandinavia or in Turkey or in China or Korea, they almost all get sent to Japan. And so the group of us, we've done joint uh, field work where we go and spend time in different villages and different markets and different scientific labs. And we try to understand how this huge economy that's now multi-billion dollars is changing people's lives, Um, how people get kind of wrapped up in it from like remote villagers up in the Himalayas where I work to very high-tech labs in Tokyo where they have multi-million dollar machines and they're trying to figure out how to cultivate Matsutake and they've never been able to succeed despite many years and many incredible minds and, 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 and a lot of research funding. 
And then we were trying to see, by calling it Matsutake Worlds, we were trying to see how this thing doesn't just generate wealth, but generates new kind of cultural forms, generates new kinds of of groups. And so the the first, the 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 kind of leader of our group um, historically um, is her is an anthropology professor at University of California at Santa Cruz. Her name is Anna Singh, and she wrote the first book in the trilogy called The Mushroom at the End of the World. And she mainly did work in Oregon, where she worked with Southeast Asian uh, immigrants and um, white Vietnam War veterans and other folks who for a few months of the year, all travel off in great distances to converge in this one place and just hunt Matsutake every day. And how that, um, so how this, this new kind of passion, new kind of global uh, commodity uh, brings all these people together in, in kind of new configurations. And then my own book, uh, uh, takes us to the the Himalayas of of China, where I work with Tibetan people and E people, and try to understand how the mushroom economy and specifically the Matsutake is changing their relationship with yaks, with their homes, between genders, between generations. That's what I originally started out to do, and then, but the book expanded and changed, and then. The first half of the book is a kind of um, deep, scientifically informed, but imaginative exploration of what happens if we rethink the evolution of life on the planet, where we foreground the role of fungi in making this evolution happen, and also explores how um, uh, all these mushrooms in the world are actually world-making um, beings so that they are actually perceiving the world, interpreting the world and acting in the world. And therefore through their many actions, they are shaping it. Um, so I felt like there was very little um, that I had seen written that really took mushrooms or often kind of anything other than humans or maybe even animals as kind of active world shapers. And so I got really interested in trying to explore those possibilities and the specifics of how different mushrooms are um, shaping the world, like building the forest through their relationships with other beings, both fungal or um, and botanical, so trees and, and, and shrubs and grasses and flowers, and also um, with animals. It seems like we're like, at a point where maybe it's a North America phenomenon, because I know it's like relationships to mushrooms and fungi are different around the world, but it seems in North America, there's like, we're more and more interested in mycology, in mushrooms and fungi, like in a way that I don't think we were before. We're seeing, you know, the TV show that was on HBO that had mushroom zombies. And that's like, I don't think we would have seen that like 10 years ago. And I have a shirt with mushrooms printed on it. And more and more people are foraging. And, you know, Suzanne Samard's book also talked about um, mycology as well. So it seems like we're really interested in this and not just magic mushrooms and toadstools, but all mushrooms. Why do you think we're seeing this in North America right now? 
Yes, yeah, such a good question. And it, and it is so fascinating. Like when I first started working on this book in 2004, um, people were kind of like mushrooms are so irrelevant. <laughs> There's something I just like sprinkle in my salad, but they're kind of tasteless and boring and just not really anything worth uh, exploring. And so it is super interesting that, yeah, 20 years basically since then, as you say, this explosion of interest and even a kind of like a romance of mushrooms so that there's a you know very popular TED Talk video by Paul Stamets, who's one of the leading mycologists who's kind of like a preacher figure. And he says, you know, how mushrooms will save the world. And so people are looking into, you know, how mushrooms can through their incredible alchemical powers can break down oil spills and they, they're they starting to learn how to eat plastic. And so there's a, a kind of sense of like putting a lot of stock into mushrooms as being able to clean up some of this incredibly toxic mess. So I think that's part of it, but it's also a, a kind of people's reconnection with the natural world. And so, yeah, you said Su- Suzanne Samard's uh, work and there's also the the um the secret lives of trees you know it's been a bestseller book um by peter wollobin and um and then there are, you know new fiction accounts that are winning major prizes too with taking uh the the non-human world uh very uh seriously and i mean i think you're right about north america but i would say here in british columbia from here down to california like this whole there's and especially the Pacific Northwest, we are probably the biggest center for various reasons of this new movement. So like friends on the East Coast in either Canada or the States, they haven't been hit as deeply with this kind of tsunami of fascination and of interest. And I, um, part of it, I think Pacific Northwest, not only is like we are in this center of incredible fungal diversity um but for various reasons we've attracted a lot of these people who've devoted their their lives to um learning about mushrooms cultivating mushrooms and as you say yeah before in the 60s it was very much late 60s very much interested mainly in psychedelics but then the yeah, the foraging has really boomed. Now there's so much interest too in their medicinal qualities. Um, and it's interesting for me, right, where I've been working in China for a long time and I would go to the markets in China in the mid 90s and there'd be, you know, 30 wild species uh, of mushrooms regularly available. And I'd come back to North America and there would be two or usually just one cultivated species. So there they've been using mushrooms for you know medicinally for you know over a millennia and they don't there's there's like a widespread knowledge and interest that is so different here and i feel like usually in this the anglophone the english speaking places we've inherited this strange british um kind of distrust and fear of mushrooms um that's slowly changing yeah, because it seems like it's even like France has a different relationship to mushrooms than, you know, British speaking cultures. And even I read a book a few years ago and it was um, I think it was a Norwegian author, but she was had mm-hmm. explored mushroom foraging as a way to deal with the, the loss of her partner. Um, and it was fascinating to just see the like 
the different cultural relationships to mushrooms, even in the European um, worlds, and and how you know, like some cultures see a mushroom as extremely poisonous, while others not so much, and like and even around the smells of mushrooms, and like it's just so it's so fascinating the human relationship to mushrooms and how it just shifts from culture to culture. It's so true, uh, Megan, and like a lot of people will say, like, oh, European or Western. And you get, you know, they'll make these statements about, you know, their views of the world often in contrast to indigenous uh, views. But then, yeah, with mushrooms, you get to see like England is a strange outlier, like in Russia and Italy (laughs) and, you know, Spain and France and Germany. I mean, all these cultures are super passionate about mushrooms or I was just spending um, some time in Finland this summer and it turned out that I mean, the woods, part of it is you can forage basically anywhere there. There is that kind of Scandinavian thing of, you know, you have the right to all, you know, to pick berries and mushrooms anywhere. So there's no kind of private property thing. And then here in British Columbia, for some reason in our in our parks, we've created a no mushroom picking uh, law. And so that kind of contributes to the sense of people's general, you know, alienation from <laughs> Uh, the mushrooms, you know, just take, you know, photos, leave only footprints kind of idea. Um, but in Finland, not only was it just so full of so many species of mushrooms, but evidently like one out of six Finns are avid mushroom hunters. And there's so much knowledge and it's just so common. I thought like, wow, in, in British Columbia, if one out of 600 people were active mushroom hunters, I would be surprised. Um, we just don't. Uh, and 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 in many places of the world, you learn it growing up from your family. And here there's very few instances I know of multi-generational uh, sharing of mushroom knowledge. Like most of my friends and in our kind of um, generation here have learned not learned it from their parents, but are learning it from books or hopefully joining a mushroom club and learning it from other people um, because it is, and it is interesting in terms of books, we we tend to go for that, but there are, um, when we, especially when we just focus on pictures, there are so many elements to the body and the characteristics of a mushroom that a lot of them can look similar in the photos. So there are so many other qualities that it really helps to have a you know, a mushroom expert who knows these deeply on a kind of almost like sensorial and sometimes even sensual level um, to help introduce us or even to show us what makes, you know, the Amanita smithii that looks very similar to the Matsutake, but is poisonous, different and help guide us through that. So that's that's been really interesting to see those differences. Yeah, my my uh, partner and I were out last weekend and we thought we'd found pines and they were definitely not. Uh, they were yeah. the Amanita. Someone stopped us and was like, no, no, here's why. And like showed us why they were different. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's such a seeing them and then having someone point out those unique characteristics that do set them apart um, is so different. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, to, to really like train ourselves to pay attention to these things. Like we, we assume when we go into the grocery store, everything's been properly vetted (laughs) by others, or, you know, we're not uh, confused between a carrot and a potato, but 
to see like exactly those two species that you were just saying, it's, um, it's something that we've all had historically, you know, as, as homo sapiens and actively foraging in the world, we've, we all have that long heritage of being attentive to the subtle distinctions of what will nourish us and what will kill us. Um, but yeah, it is so interesting to, to like gain that back, um, something that may have been lost for many generations. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about the writing of the book, because I've talked with other folks for the podcast uh, about who come from an academic background and then write a book that they want non-academics to read. Um, and and I was wondering, like, what did you consider about writing this book so that hopefully it would reach a wider audience and not just other anthropologists like yourself? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, strangely too, I mean, because of Anna Singh writing the first one through a university press, so it's Princeton University Press, then mine's also through there. And so it's, there's a way in which they tend to also be geared toward the academic audience. But but her book had such a wide readership, and I think they were then open to me writing a, a not-so-academic book. And part of it was taking those kind of nerdy, more arcane uh, questions and debates and putting those into the footnotes. And then really just trying to step out to think of an audience that's um, mushroom curious, but has no background in it. And so that was, it was the hard, I think the hardest thing for me was trying to think, uh, I would ideally like it to be able to be taught in an anthropology course, but that was the second priority. And my highest priority was something, you know, my parents could read or my, you know, 20 year old child could read and who doesn't have any of that background um, and to try to like translate some of the very difficult scientific terminology and concepts into layperson's language. So I spent many, many hours reading these peer-reviewed scientific reports where I could barely understand it. And I spent like five years basically doing this and sometimes had some biologist friends who helped translate things to me as um, a new person. And I had a bunch of people read it and um give feedback but yeah i mean the the sad thing about um academics is that we're often writing for 20 people who are really so dedicated to the very particular sets of questions that we're interested in and that's considered fine in the academy um there's no nobody cares or nobody has thought about like how many readers you have it's not a priority but that was something that I really tried um, to push. The press was was fine in um, in in working with that, uh, but it was something that I had been striving to do for a while. So it wasn't totally new for me. Um, like in my in my first book, I tried to write it for an audience that knew nothing about China. So I was um, it was on um, global environmentalism and indigenous rights in China, but. I tried to be 
a very inclusive writer. Um, so hopefully, you know, hopefully what a mushroom lives for is, um, is uh, mainly uh, successful in that. Although it is interesting, people getting into picking up a book on mushrooms often have a certain agenda. And so some people say, I wanted to learn more about the biology of the Matsutake itself. And sometimes I describe it as a bit of a philosophical book and one that's aimed at um, engaging with this question of human exceptionalism or human supremacy. And so it it's, it's a broad ranging um, book, but that is hopefully um, pitched decently for a broad audience. It's not too overburdened with complicated academic jargon. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit more about that, that human exceptionalism and, and like also looking at the fact that mushrooms have agency and can have agency and are world makers. Like, I'm sure these are ideas that some folks are like, uh, what now? <laughs> you know, but I also think there's a lot of people who are, our, our ideas around the natural world have shifted again, like our ideas about mushrooms have shifted. It seems like people are more and more open to these ideas that humans are not the center of the universe and we, things actually have their own agency in their own lives. Um, but why was this something that was so important for you to explore in this book and with the mushroom? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I wrote about this in um, the book itself, but uh, when my daughter was in grade 11, she said, oh, my friends and I, we had this great conversation after school around problems of human exceptionalism. So, and that briefly means the idea that humans are exceptional, like we're maybe an animal, but we are also qualitatively different or human supremacy that, you know, humans are the supreme being and, you know, have a, like a, often like a, a, a monopoly on these special skills. So a lot of people say only humans have language or have the capacity to reason or can imagine the future or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many ideas kind of around it. And um, so I said, oh, that's so great. You guys had that discussion. I'm I'm so surprised that your um, teachers are teaching you about human exceptionalism. I never heard that in high school. And she's like, oh, Pa, like our teachers would never talk about human exceptionalism. It's like human exceptionalist all the way and everything we do. It's we've learned about it just through, you know, social media. And, you know, it's a, like something we've heard about and we're really intrigued by because it always seemed a little bit wrong to think humans, um, you know, are not fellow animals. Humans are kind of like not part of, of the environment. So it's just something that, you know, that came up. And so it's some, somehow it's, it's in the air. And I think for me, it was in part through uh, the people that I worked with in China, these uh, e uh, goat herding people, and I um, developed some close relationships with some of the mushroom hunters, and they talked to me how they were like um, studying their competitors in the woods, and by then they meant the in these different species of insects, and they were paying real attention to them, and they were talking about how 
one insect was species was learning from another insect species. And I, I came back to Vancouver and mentioned this to a, a friend who was saying, that's so ridiculous. Like insects don't have brains. Like they can't do this. And then I quickly, you know, looked into, of course, insects have brains and, um, but there was like very little work that had been done about how different species learn from each other. And I became really intrigued by like, is there any Western attention to this in scientific literature about how this works? And, and there had been around like larger animals, but there's so little about um, fungi. So I tried to explore like, could I look into this and um, what what seemed like strong evidence that there could be, although I'd sometimes get on to the, like the edge of what was like possibly um, well-supported science. And so I tried to, um, to only be quoting from scientists in the book who whose findings were taken seriously. So that was an interesting thing Whereas I was trying to go to the edge of kind of what was possible or supportable in science. Um, but I didn't want to just put out ideas or represent them as true of, um, of different experiments that weren't given a lot of credence. So I was kind of interested in playing, still staying within the space of uh, general scientific legitimacy, but knowing that scientists are always debating themselves, like it's always very, it's, there's, it's, it's fluid, um, and contentious. Um, but I, I don't know, I think I've had like a strong intuition for a long time, um, growing up that, uh, the story of human exceptionalism was deeply wrong and probably a lot of um, the source of hubris um, that has helped get us into this kind of environmental predicament. So I had a sense then in writing the book though, that like, if we can, if we can understand that mushrooms have agency, then it's far easier to see um, how, you know, fellow animals have it or even then plants. So uh, just trying to there's been some work in, in anthropology, it's called like um, interested companion species, but it's often in human dog relationships or like with horses or other kind of more familiar mammals or sometimes, you know, relationships or, or looking at the lives of orangutans or chimpanzees or bonobos or gorillas. But I thought, how far can I extend this as a, as a kind of push um, and, and, and look at, and look at mushrooms as, um, as, as world making agents. Yeah. I'm curious how you approach, like in your research and writing, um, you know, you said you wanted to only use the scientists who had, you know, somewhat credible, uh, and, and well-researched, uh, work, but you also work with indigenous people who, I mean, we see this with Robin Wall Kimmerer's work as well, where she's kind of, as a scientist and an Indigenous person, she's always kind of balancing between those two uh, worlds. And I know Indigenous folks have very different understandings and relationships to the natural world and human relationships. How do you balance those two in how you understand, you know, mushrooms and your own work? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, well definitely like i like i said like 
learning from like the e-mushroom hunters around the insects and then talking too with um, Tibetan folks who are not, uh, they have very different theories of the kind of status of different organisms in the world. Um, but yeah, Robin Wall Kimmer's work, like I, I should just say too, was really informative and incredibly helpful. And um, she helped show me too how deeply embedded in dominant Western um, ways of understanding that, that there are such subtle ways in which we performed human exceptionalism, even in our grammar. So we'd often just refer to only humans could we'd use the term who <laughs> and non-humans we'd use the term it. And so, for example, based on that, you know, beautiful essay that she wrote that I read of that, I said, I'm going to re, you know, rewrite this book uh, to do um, incorrect pronoun use <laughs> uh, based on old English standards. And it was interesting, the editors at my press were first like, no, no, this is only for humans. I said, no, that's part of the point of the book is I'm trying to push at these kind of invisible structures of the way that we even encode a sense of exceptionalism through the very subtle and unremarked upon features of language. And they accepted that. So that was that was great. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing was I tried not to set up a whole kind of indigenous versus Western binary like those are very appealing um and but i was still and i'm still very dedicated to holding these ways of viewing and experience the world on equal footing so a lot of time i feel like there's i mean there's an extractionist thing of saying okay the the western scientific um viewpoint is true and then how do we integrate or like add in little bits of indigenous knowledge. And I feel like that kind of common framework um, reinforces uh, Western dominance. And so part of what my book was is trying to see the cultural and historical underpinnings of Western science itself, to see how it had changed, to see how there are what some people call cultural fingerprints even within what becomes often imagined to be a universal just biology and, and true. So I was trying to show um, and point to some of the ways in which um, European cultural beliefs are then smuggled into science. I mean, it's even funny, we're talking about like the kingdom, kingdoms of life and how much that is part of a medieval European like framework for understanding, you know, a, a political organization that becomes naturalized and kind of applied to the to the biological world. But there are so many instances of that. So I was trying to more put, you know, Tibetan and E um, ways of understanding the world on a kind of equal footing um, with with Western science and also trying to to kind of break away at a a sense of our faith in science as somehow removed from culture that we've been taught or that many scientists don't believe that they, you know, they believe they deal more with facts and don't necessarily see the ways that cultural framings or narratives are so important in the work. But then I tried to also, 
you know, meet and understand a lot of scientists who do, who do exactly recognize that and reflect back. And they were very helpful to help me ex uh, understand better um, how these are all equally cultural and historical frameworks. So I guess that's kind of some of the aim um, in terms of, of, of dealing with those realms of thinking. Yeah. So I feel like one thing we we need to talk about with this book and that maybe doesn't get talked about as much is there's another Vancouver contributor to this book and it and it's the illustrator right of the images in your book. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit about the the illustrations and uh, including those in the book? Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you asked about yeah, I work with this amazing artist Sak Saki Murotani. And she was not somebody who was really that um, deeply in love with and involved with, with mushrooms, but it was so great to work with her. And obviously she became kind of enchanted with them. And actually just last month, a neighbor of hers brought her fresh matsutake <laughs> that were gathered. They just showed up on the doorstep and I said, okay, now you're fully part of of, of the the secret cult um it was so great to work with her uh because part of what we were trying to do is use some of these different existing scientific illustrations but give them a sense of life and um artistic beauty and she's so creative and um able to do that and so there were really fun projects too like creating maps that showed the relationships between the habitat of yaks and the habitat of Matsutake. There were um, a beautiful image he did that showed the whole range of relationships that fungi have with plants and animals. So it was this drawing that showed that there are endophytic fungi living within the leaf of every known plant. Um, within a log, there are oyster mushrooms who are actively hunting nematode wor worms. So there are these carnivorous mushrooms, which seems kind of surprising and interesting. There's um, these plants that she showed in this drawing as well that um, are known as the hackers. They hack into uh, underground mycelial connections. So between a, a fungi and a plant, and they can jump into the middle of it. They don't even have chlorophyll, so they're not making sugars. And they can um, absorb some of this um, exchange between fungi and plants. So, and and made these other um, beautiful drawings that I wasn't able to uh, make color in the book, but then I uh, been reproducing some of them on my website to show the 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 glorious color and and the range of forms. Um, of everything from you know the the microscopic yeast that transforms our you know barley juice into beer or you know grape juice into wine um to these you know gigantic um fungi that cover you know a thousand hectares of land that are the largest known living things and so yeah i think she was really able to um to bring to life and help us visualize and imagine um, some of these organisms and the, the incredible diversity of relationships they have and forms they take. 
Um, so yeah, I'm actively, I'm, I'm working with her now and we're trying to brainstorm um, creating a children's book um, that foregrounds um, probably something like Mushrooms as People. And I had some incredible conversations actually with her, um, her, her son who just had so many questions for me about mushrooms and um, made me think, oh uh, yeah, what would it be like to translate this to, you know, a, a, a 10 year old level or a, or a five year old level and, and what kind of stories could we tell? That was Michael Hathaway. Michael's book, What a Mushroom Lives For, Matsutake and the Worlds They Make, won the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for writing that provokes and was a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Christopher Patterson. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.